0: Welcome to the New Hope Podcast. Our mission at New Hope is to engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time. We pray this message encourages you in encountering God's love and displaying it to your city. We hope to see you soon. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Amos chapter one? In our one-year reading, we have come into the Minor Prophets where this past week and in the week to come, we're going to read through numerous books of the Bible because they're not very long. Some of them you're going to read in one day, an entire book of the Bible. And these are your minor prophets. Now, once again, they're major prophets, minor prophets. They're not major and minor in importance. They're not major and minor in anything dealing with their content. They're simply major and minor in the length of the book of the Bible itself. Your major prophets are just much longer. Therefore, they're major in size, minor They are much smaller. So the fact that we're reading minor prophets, by definition, they're smaller, and we're going to read through quite a few of them. And so we're going to be in Amos, and what I want to do uh, today in Amos is let it set an example for us of a common theme that we don't see in all the minor prophets or in the prophets overall, but it is a theme that we do see as a general truth that is all throughout. But Amos just makes it particularly clear as we look at some of these truths. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Amos. There's not going to be anything on the screen today, and so please have a Bible in front of you, or if you're on the online.church platform, there's a Bible option tab that you can click on and type in Amos. Give a little context, Amos overall is prophesying to Israel. Okay, now there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, with the capital city, Samaria. The southern kingdom is uh, Judah with the capital city, Jerusalem. Northern kingdom is 10 tribes. uh, 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 Southern kingdom is two tribes. And they have a lot of animosity with one another, even though they are family. In 722 BC, we see the northern kingdom conquered and Samaria, the capital city, destroyed. So 722 BC. Amos is prophesying about 30 years before that. So in the generation leading up to the destruction of Israel, Amos is prophesying. And here he'll even prophesy the destruction of Israel, and he gives the reasons for it. And that's what we want to focus on. So just understand the context a little bit. Amos is prophesying to Israel in the northern kingdom before the northern kingdom is conquered uh, and destroyed in the capital city Uh, uh, taken captive. Okay, so Amos, this is what's going on. So Amos chapter 1 says this, verse 2, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now that phrase kind of sets a theme that we're going to see throughout Amos, and the theme is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is a play on words. It's a, it's a very common theological truth in Scripture. But culturally, it was a play on words that would have been similar, the day of the king. And a day of the king, the idea was, if, if you were to say the day of the king is coming or the day of the Lord is coming. The day, why is it a day? Because it's the belief that a king would come in and is so powerful that he was able to conquer an entire city and an entire land in one day. That he had so much power and might that if he were to show up, he would bring his power and might on a place and would completely conquer it or destroy it in a single day. Now, not necessarily always that it happened in a day. It was a, it was a metaphorical phrase that really just communicated that if a king showed up, a day of the king, if the day that the king comes is the day that we are destroyed, because it was his power who comes. So it was a metaphorical phrase that just really communicated the power of the coming king and what it meant as destruction on you as the enemy to the king. So when Israel would long for the day of the Lord, why would they long for it? Because the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, the day that the Lord would come, would always bring two things with it. One, it would be judgment and destruction for the enemy. But if you're on the side of the king or if you're on the side of the Lord, then that meant blessing. That meant salvation. That meant if you were waiting for the day of the king and you're an ally of the king, That means he would come and save you from the enemy. So Israel, trusting in God as the supreme being that the Bible teaches, then the day of the Lord meant good for them because they were allies of the king. So they thought. So imagine you are Israel, you're not recognizing and you're ignoring your sin, and you don't recognize that God is about to bring judgment on you, and so they're saying, because they see that Assyria is getting close to moving in, they're building up their empire, and they're getting close to conquering, and they would in the next uh, decade or so conquer uh, them. And so they're seeing this happen. And so they're beginning to create allies with smaller countries around them, and they're crying out, the day of the Lord, God will save us. The day of the Lord is coming. We are allies of the king. So Amos starts with that idea, and it says this in Amos 1.3, Thus says the Lord, For the transgressions of Damascus and for four, excuse me, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Damascus, not an ally. This is good, this phrase that we're going to see, for three transgressions, and then it fills in the name, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. So look at Amos 1.3, they fill in the blank Damascus. Look at verse 6 of Amos 1, thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. See this phrase. And what's happening is the, this phrase, three transgressions, and then put in the name, or four, it's going to list for these three or four reasons, judgment is coming. And so they list, Amos is listing this, and now he's listing the enemies of Israel. And so in, Israel's hearing this, and they're going, yeah, that's right, absolutely, the day of the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus, for three transgressions of Gaza. In verse 9, for three t- transgressions of Tyre, in verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom, in verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. So the people are going, yes, it's just listing off the enemies, and they're going, yes, the day of the Lord means punishment for these people. It means victory for us. You go into chapter 2. It says this, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Now, you got to understand that there are seven uh, countries listed prior to, eventually it's going to get to Israel. But there's seven countries listed. The last three are close family relatives in some ways, and even specifically. So it's getting closer and closer to home. It's farther enemies, then it's getting closer to home of judgment that is going to come. And then it says in chapter two, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Look at chapter two, verse four. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Now remember, Judah is the southern kingdom. They are the close relative of Israel. They are family. They are of the same covenant, but because of dissension and disunity, they have broken and have become enemies. They have fault. You can read this in 1 and Kings. They fight constantly. So Israel is like, yes, Judah will even be conquered. Now, here's something we need to know as you read this. First, if it says, in all seven of those that I just listed, it says this, for three transgressions of fill in the blank, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. But if you go and read what then it lists out those transgressions, because this is how it works, you would say for three transgressions of so-and-so and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And then it lists those three or four things out. But if you're reading closely, you'll notice with all seven of those countries, it never lists more than two things. So why is it saying for three transgressions or four, but then it only lists one or two reasons? It's showing, it's, it's showing incompleteness. It's showing uh, paraphrasing. It's showing that this isn't the focus. What is the focus? It's adding emphasis. You say for three or these three or four reasons, punishment is coming, and you only list one or two things. Well, something's missing. It's as if they're not the focus. But I want you to see what happens when we get to chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, all of a sudden, remember, Amos is prophesying to Israel. And up to this point, he's been prophesying against the enemy. But all of a sudden, he, get, he touches home. He's talking to his own people, he says for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment. But this time the text gives us all four reasons. Amos is making it clear. The day of the Lord is punishment on you to Israel. Remember, we started day of the Lord meant punishment on enemies and salvation for you as the people of God. So he's listing out the punishment on Damascus and on Gaza and on Tyree and on Edom and the Ammonites and Moab and Judah. And then all of a sudden, you think that means punishment on those seven means victory for you. But then all of a sudden, Amos says, you too, punishment is coming on the day of the Lord you will not be on the good side of the day of the Lord. You will be on the bad side of the day of the Lord. So do not get excited about the day of the Lord because you too, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment. I'm giving you all that textual context to see the emphasis that Amos is driving into Israel. And then I want us to pay attention. What are those four reasons that God's going to bring judgment on the people of Israel, which we would see, just a few decades later, full destruction of Samaria, full destruction of Israel, and he lists those four reasons. And the question I want us to ask is, how do we see these sins in our lives, and our culture today? So let's continue reading Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. There are four reasons that judgment is coming. The first one we see immediately is because of injustice to the poor and the afflicted. The first reason that judgment is coming on the people of God is because it says because they sell the righteous for silver, meaning they take bribes when it comes to justice. They sell righteousness for money. They're willing to trade righteousness for selfish gain and the needy for a pair of sandals, meaning they will give up the needy in order to gain something it says it clearly in verse 7 those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted the first reason that judgment is coming on the people of god is because of injustice to the poor and the afflicted in the community and culture around them listen to me when we begin to talk and have conversations in our country about injustice to the poor and about class and socio-economic uh, groupings. And we talk about the lower class and the middle class and the upper class. And we begin to have conversations about communities and the the economics and the racial aspects of communities. Immediately we want to kind of go into politics. Immediately we begin to put up defenses, immediately begin to go and get our battle arguments ready. And just talk about why this, we got to do this, and why we need to do this, and why this, this, is and this. And a lot of it has, there's a lot of different motivations behind what we do. But I want us to see something from the very beginning. And I want to be clear what I am saying and what I'm not saying. And what I am saying is simply what I'm saying And don't try to read between the lines because immediately we'll take truths that we try to take from Scripture. And because these might be hot topics in our culture, we immediately try to put the person, me, the speaker, into a political box. And I'm telling you, you can't put me into a political box. So don't try to take what I'm about to say and bring it to its full end application unless I clearly spell that out. But listen to me. When we look at one of the primary sins of Israel and what it tells us about us as humans with sinful natures is this. It's the first sin in which God is going to bring judgment and destruction on his people is because of injustice to the poor and ignoring the afflicted in the community and culture around them. And the reality is, is we have poor and afflicted in our community around us, period. Before we go into trying to even define who those groups are, that's not the point necessarily at this exact moment. What I need you to hear me at this exact moment is that the reality is... Based off what we see in Israel, and as we think about how we can see truths in ourselves, is two immediate things. One is that there is a poor and a community that is afflicted in our country and culture around us, period. That's going to change from place to place, but the the existence of that reality is true. Second is in our sinful nature, we tend naturally to oppress and ignore that culture and community. Those two realities, the culture community that has a more impoverished and an afflicted community around us exists. And two, in our sinful nature, we will naturally lean most of the time to ignore and afflict that for personal gain. Now, how we take that truth and then apply it to try to change that in our culture does turn into applications that are often talking points within politics. And here's what I want to say, I I told you you couldn't put me in a political box, and part of the reason you can't put me in a political box is because I honestly want to bring the gospel and see how the gospel speaks into both political parties, To see aspects of the gospel in both Democrats and Republicans and somewhere in between. That we see the gospel in a lot of different things. And that the answer to the need and the answer to the world around us is not a political party. It is not government, but it is the gospel. But yet, government and politics play into it. And so how can we see the gospel permeate into those conversations on both sides of the aisle? Point is, though is that judgment comes on Israel due to injustice to the poor and the afflicted. And if we ignore that, then we are committing the very sin that God first brings judgment on Israel, according to Amos. So church, as we think about application, how do we apply this? one well, Part of the application is that we must do something. We must play our role in some part. And the, the specifics of that is a longer conversation. And yes, it does involve a lot of different scenarios with politics. But the point is, being silenced is not an option. When we think about the need around us, sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the need that we just have paralysis and do nothing at all. And so I ask you simply the question is, how can you live your life today? How can you live your life today with the lens of the gospel of Jesus? And how can you love people? How can you speak life into people? How can you encourage people? How can you help one person? How can you help someone? How can you use the blessings that God has given you and bless others, whether that's with your time, whether that is with your resources of finances, or whether that's with a gift or a skill? But listen to me. Ignoring justice, oppressing uh, justice for people and not giving them justice and bringing affliction on the poor and the needy is the first reason that God brings judgment. And so how can we as the church speak into those things and recognize that Christ, when we were dead in our sins, therefore we were afflicted, that we were held down. There was nothing we could do to make our life matter for eternity. There was nothing that we could do. He stepped down, loved us, poured the, His grace, mercy, and gave His life for us. So church is going to require us to not only model that, but preach the gospel and really believe the gospel is the answer the cultural things around us and this is the last thing i want to say on this and the other three truths will go a little bit faster but here's the last thing i want to say to this i I hear conversations that the church should just preach the gospel and the, uh, the rest of this other stuff should stay out of the pulpit and the rest of this other stuff should be left to other people but listen to me these other things are a gospel issue the gospel speaks to everything And so, yes, the spiritual reality of the gospel is primary. But eternal life and the gospel speaking to that has effect on the physical world around us. That, yes, eternal salvation precedes physical salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, that the gospel has eternity in mind, and yes, we preach the gospel, but we are not going to preach a gospel that is so heavenly-minded that it has no earthly good. But we will preach a gospel that is heavenly-minded, and because it's heavenly-minded, it has great earthly good in the lives of people around us. Let us be a church that says that. Second thing, not only do they is there injustice to the poor and the afflicted, but second, there's great sexual impurity and immorality. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Sexual immorality and purity was the second characteristic of the culture of Israel that God would bring on the day of the Lord, would make and bring judgment on the people. I don't have to spell this out, but our culture and our lives are marked with sexual impurity and sexual immorality, even inside the church. And listen to me, that this is an abomination to God. And listen, it says, so that my holy name is profaned. Sexual Im- impurity and immorality profanes the name of God. Listen to me, I'm not on my high horse preaching. I'll be the first to admit that I, like everyone else, have struggled with sexual immorality and sexual impurity because it is just something that is prevalent and not only just in sin and the enemy has done a great job holding us captive. But I will say, as I speak to that, the gospel offers freedom and salvation and forgiveness. Praise God. But that does not mean that then we just continue in sexual immorality and impurity. No, the gospel has saved us and set us free. Jesus loves you right where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. And so, yes, Jesus met me in my sexual immorality and saved me and has set me free, and he can you too. But the point is, is that it is an abomination. How do we see this play out? We see this play out in rampant pornography. We see this play out in rampant sexual misconduct. We see this play out in the church by not taking marriage and the sexual union within marriage seriously. We see this play out by those not being married, have sexual relations with one another. We see this play out by those not being married, living together. It is a big deal to God and it is a big deal to us. Now listen to me. This is not fire and brimstones. It is the gospel. It's speaking truth that we must see this is what God says. But the gospel offers grace and salvation absolutely. You're not condemned under this truth. You're, this truth is spoken to set you free in the gospel of Jesus. But let us see that this is a big deal to God. It is the second reason that judgment is going to come on the people of Israel. Third, it says in verse 8, They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taking in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This phrase in verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken a pledge, meaning that they will lay down and worship any altar or any God that they think will benefit them. Listen to me. They are not faithful in worship to God of the Bible, but they are just pluralistic and worship the gods of this world. The third reason that judgment is coming on them is because there's not faithfulness to God in worship. But they have the idols of this world that they worship the things of this world. I, I, I know this is true, has been true, and continues to fight the reality, even in my own life, of how I want to worship the things around me. This fast, man, there's something about fasting that just brings humility into my, into my heart because it shows me all my pride and my sin. Fasting, I have like to think of this way. It's like pulling the layers of an onion back to get to the core of really what's going on in my life. Something about fasting that it just allows me to really see the idols of my heart. It allows me to see how much I really do love and seek food Or seek the pleasures of this world. Now listen to me. There is a lot of pleasure in this world. And I believe that God gives us blessings to enjoy the world. Absolutely. I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy or have pleasure. I'm just saying that you shouldn't worship the pleasure that comes from it. That you shouldn't seek it as your ultimate pleasure and joy. But that comes in Christ and Christ alone. But our hearts are idol factories. And we tend to worship the things of this world. And he is condemning them for worshiping the other gods. How do you and I worship the gods of money? How do you and I worship the gods of sex? How do you and I worship the gods of just pleasure and joy? How do we worship the gods of laziness and worship the god of just having comfort? I want us to see that God has created us to worship him. And you and I will always fight against worshiping the things of this world over the things of God. You and I will always fight the battle of worshiping creation over the creator himself. But scripture in the gospel calls us to worship Jesus because he is worthy. He is worthy of praise. He has given his life for us. He has laid down his life. He has earned and bought our salvation. He is worthy of our worship. So first, not only do we see injustice to the poor and the afflicted. Second, Do we see sexual impurity? Third, they worshiped other gods. But fourthly, they silenced the word of God. Look at verse 12 of chapter two. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Nazarites drink wine you got to go back to the levitical law you'll see a Nazarite vow one of the things that the Nazarite vow was never allowed to do they were never allowed to drink in drink or eat anything of the vine so they couldn't drink wine because it comes from grapes on the vine they couldn't eat grapes they couldn't have anything of uh, of the vine and so forcing them to drink wine was silencing the commands of god It was taking a holy command and silencing it and saying it has no effect over us anymore. And this is precisely what's happening when it says you commanded the prophets, you shall not prophesy. They were silencing the word of God. They were saying, you know what? God's word given to us is not authority over us. Yeah, it's nice to read and maybe we'll study it from a literature standpoint. But but our own pleasures and our own opinions and our own wisdom is the God of this world. Science, maybe, is the God of this world. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. But they said, you know what? God's word is not going to be the authority over us. We're going to listen to our emotions and our feelings, and we'll listen to the word of God if, it, if, it, if it's what we want. But if it's not what we like, then we'll just ignore it. We'll ignore the commands of God. We'll tell the prophets to not talk the word of God anymore. We will silence the word of God and live how we want. So what happens? Judgment comes upon them. Listen to me. If you and I silence the word of God, then how do we even know anything about God? Not only is God's word the authority over us, but why is it the authority over us? Because it is God's revelation of himself to us. And so I want us to see that we must not silence the word of God. So the reason why we put a lot of emphasis on the preaching of the word of God. It's why we put a lot of emphasis on singing, praying, talking. During our one-year reading, we're reading the word of God because we want to know what the word says. So that it can transform our lives and that we can apply it and go live and honor Him. That we can see where He our sin is, so that He can purify us and work in us. I want us to just take a moment and have just this honest reflection of going, how do we see these sins in our own lives personally? Amos is building up the emphasis. To come and and bring down judgment on Israel and he lists four things injustice to the poor sexual immorality they worshipped other gods, the little g gods and they silenced the word of God how do you see those four things true in your life I know when I was reading Amos and studying this, it was convicting of me, how does my life and my actions cause injustice to the poor and the afflicted around me how do my life and my actions show sexual impurity and immorality? How do I find at times I worship the gods of this world, the things of this world, and how have I silenced the word of God in my life? By simply going, yeah, I know God's word says that, but maybe next time. But this time, we're going to do it this way. Listen to me. Let us repent of these things, church. Let us repent of these things. And as you read the rest of the Minor Prophets, you're gonna see a common theme over and over and over again of the prophets speaking judgment on the people for the purpose of getting them to repent. Think about Jonah. Jonah, what, went to Nineveh to preach judgment and they repented. And therefore, God did not bring judgment. The point of the prophets is God speaking to his covenant people and as they were speaking hard truths, the point was to get them to repent, to turn unto God. Amos would even say that in Amos chapter 5, verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You see, the whole point of the condemnation that, he just, that we just walked through, the, that hard truth, was to call them to repentance. And the same is true in preaching when I give hard truths. It is to call you to repentance in Jesus. Amos has a famous passage that is just challenging and convicting. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Remember, they're excited for the day of the Lord, and Amos is saying, you shouldn't be excited for the day of the Lord because it's going to bring judgment on you. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light for you. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. You think the day of the Lord is good. It's like getting away from a lion, but it's honestly, you're running away from a lion by ignoring it, and you're running right into the trap of a bear. That would be awful. What a bad day. You safely escaped a lion just to turn the corner and find a bear ready to get you. Or you went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and you found a serpent came and bit you. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness? The day of the Lord is bad for you if you do not repent. And the truth is that the day of the Lord is a common theological truth all throughout Old and New Testament to speak that one day Christ is coming back. That is the day of the Lord. Christ is returning and he will judge the living and the dead. It's called the day of judgment. It's a day where God's going to bring judgment and the truth is, is that it's a dark day if you're not in Christ. But in Christ, in repentance, you may live. It is a day of light. But here's what God continues to say to them because they are unrepentant. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Meaning your times of worship are pointless. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, which was a form and act of worship. So although you're worshiping me, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of fattened animals, I will not look to them. He says, listen to me. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. And then this verse right here. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What does he call them to do? is to reverse the sins. Remember, the first sin that was referenced is that they were allowing injustice to the poor and the afflicted. Well, what does he say? Repent. Don't just give me your acts of worship in a building and ignore the people around you, but instead, repent of that and let justice roll down like waters. This verse in particular always reminds me of Martin Luther's great speech, I Have a Dream. Yesterday, in honor of this text, just reminding me of that, I went back and listened to that speech. What a timely speech in the early 1960s, and what a timely speech for today. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I just want to give one more reference. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? As we read the prophets, as we've been reading the prophets and continue to read the prophets in the days to come, you're going to see a common theme where God rejects religious activity that is not backed with gospel love to the world around you. God is not impressed with the fact that we gather and sing songs to him, but we continue in sinful actions throughout the week. Do not convince yourself that that is okay. But you're gonna see a theme over and over and over again that our love for God is demonstrated in our love for our neighbor. You say you love God, how do we love our neighbor? You say you love God, how do you walk humbly with him? And so I end with this challenge. Might you love your neighbor? Might you care for your neighbor? Might you care for someone that's completely different from you? Might you recognize that there is oppression and affliction in the world around us? And how can the church and the gospel speak to those things? How can you, Christian, speak to those things? How can you act? How can you serve? And then for you listening to this who do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I lovingly call you to repent of your sin and turn to Christ in salvation. I don't mean to fear, but I do mean to be honest. The day of the Lord is a very real thing. Scripture speaks to it as the day of judgment, that Christ will return, and that will be a dark day that is like escaping a lion just to turn around and be mauled by bear. It is hopeless for you outside of the person of Jesus. This is the story of the Bible. This is the good news of the gospel, is that the day of the Lord is coming, and because of sin, there's nothing but darkness upon us, But Jesus stepped in, died on the cross to bear that guilt and that shame so that you and I could see that the hope is not in this world. The hope is not in politics. The hope is not in our money. The hope is not in sex. The hope is not in our our identity in this world or anything this world has to offer. But our hope is in Jesus because the day of the Lord is a day of a mighty king coming to bring judgment and only the king can save you. Therefore, the king had to save you and he did by with his life on the cross. This is the story of the gospel is that there's hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. Would you turn to Jesus today? Would you worship him today? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you and we hope to see you soon.